This morning we come to the end of what has been a 12-week series through this uh, middle portion of John's Gospel. Of course, this series has been titled Tough Questions. We've been thinking about some really tough questions that have been asked of Jesus, to Jesus, and about Jesus. Maybe it's questions that uh, we have, maybe it's questions that the disciples had, or maybe it's questions that the Pharisees have had, but but we really uh, wrap this up this morning with uh, John building us up towards the pinnacle of his his gospel. We'll be taking about a four week break from John's gospel before we return to John chapter twelve to see this on through. But uh, this is the end of chapter eleven is incredibly important for where John is going in the remainder of this gospel. And the question that we are considering this morning, why did Jesus die, is an incredibly important answer to understanding why John gives so much attention to the answer to this question in the remainder of his gospel. Of course, John, we'll see later on, John says that if everything was written down that Jesus did, he supposes that all of the books in the world could not contain it. And so if there was all this that Jesus did, why did John give so much attention to really the answer to this question, why did Jesus die? And what you'll see when we return in about a month to John chapter 12 is that uh, that, that this, the end of chapter 11 sort of serves as this transition piece where we're just leaving the festival cycle as it's known in John's gospel. And at the beginning of chapter 12, we pick up in Passover week. We, re- we reference this as Passion Week. And so all the way from John chapter 12 to the end of John's gospel, he, he dedicates every bit of this content to the last week of Jesus' life on this earth. And so uh, this question is incredibly significant. It's what all of the questions before have been building to. And so I invite you to read with me. Again, we're in John chapter 11 this morning. We're going to read verses 45 through verse 57. That is through the end of chapter 11. So John chapter 11, beginning in verse 45. John writes, Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did, believed on Him. But some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what, th- what things Jesus had done. Then gathered the chief priest and the Pharisees a council and said, What do we do? For this man doeth many miracles. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him. And the Romans shall come and take away both our place and our nation. And one of them, named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, You know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation perish not. Verse 51, And this spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation. And not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one, the children of God, that were scattered abroad. Then from that day forth, they took counsel together for to put Him to death. Jesus, therefore, walked no more openly among the Jews, but went thence unto a country near to the wilderness, and to a city called Ephraim. And there continued with His disciples. And the Jews' Passover was nigh at hand, and many went out of the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. 
Then sought they for Jesus, and spake among themselves, as they stood in the temple, What think ye, that He will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a commandment, that if any man knew where He were, He should show it, that they might take Him. Let's pray together. Lord, we are thankful for Your Word. Lord, we believe that it is truly inerrant, infallible. Lord, we believe that it is profitable for everything that we need, especially for the teaching. Lord, for rebuke, reproof, Lord, even for encouragement. And so, Lord, as we take this Word, as we seek to rightly divide it this morning, God, we pray that You would open the depths of our heart, Lord, that we would not just hear with our ears, that we would not just see it with our eyes, but that we would consume this Word into the very heart of our being. Lord, that that Your light might shine into the dark corners of our lives, revealing the sinfulness, revealing the laziness, revealing the complacency. Lord, even as we consider with these Pharisees thousands of years ago, Lord, may we too have the dangers of our religion revealed. That we may reject any notion of religion. That it might not hinder that it might not stand in the way of a living relationship with your living Son, Jesus Christ, who did not die for one nation only, but died for the nations that your children might be gathered together in your family. And it is in this hope that we worship. It is in this hope that we read this Word. It is in this hope that we live. And so God, we pray that you would take all of this, that you would bless it for our sanctification, but most of all, Lord, that you would be glorified in it. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So we have seen the cross of Christ becoming a little bit more prominent as John's gospel has played out. Uh, Jesus is becoming a little bit more direct with his disciples and even with the crowd, with the religious leaders about who he is and what he's come to do. And so it's been making its way towards the central focus of our content. But now, here at the end of John chapter 11, we really see the cross of Christ beginning to take center stage. Now listen, historically, the death of Jesus Christ is undisputable. It is one of the most attested events in all of ancient history. Right Now, now what a a historian believes about the death of Jesus Christ Uh, What it accomplished is another thing. But if you're a historical scholar and you deny the actual death of of Jesus from Nazareth, then you're going to be laughed at in the historical community. Historical scholars are going to laugh at you if you reject the notion that there was a man named Jesus from Nazareth who was crucified on the cross. It is one of the most historically attested facts in all of ancient history. And so the question isn't whether or not Jesus died. Historically speaking, without a doubt, Jesus died. The question, the question that all of eternity for you and I weighs on is why? Why did Jesus die? Not whether He died, but what did His death accomplish? Now it's interesting if you notice this passage is really broken down into two separate perspectives. We have the perspective of the religious leaders on Jesus' death. And we have the perspective of God on Jesus' death. This may be the first thing that the Pharisees have agreed with God on the entire Gospel of John. That Jesus needs to die. And we see these two perspectives coming coming into the light, right? They're coming into center stage. The religious leaders want Him dead and God has planned for Jesus to die. 
But what's interesting is these two perspectives really reveal something that I would call the tale of two hearts. Right? You have the heart of the religious leaders and their motives for Jesus' death, and then you have the heart of God. Right? The heart of the religious leaders is set on selfishness and self-righteousness. The heart of God is set on love, redemption, and salvation. And so you see these two things clashing. Right? This is the tension that's been carrying out through the first ten and a half, ten and two-thirds chapters of the Gospel of John. Right? The religious leaders, their self-righteousness, and the love of God. Right? The humility of the Messiah and the pride of the religious leaders. And we've been seeing this tension, right? And I'll come back to this again in a second, but I believe with all of my heart, one of the most important books in the whole New Testament for the church. Yes, I think all, I think all of the books are important. I think the epistles, I think Paul's, right, Paul's letters to the churches, I think those are important. But I think the Gospel of John serves as one of the most stark warnings for the American church today. Right? We know that John wrote his gospel. You'll, he, he clarifies this at the end of this gospel, why he wrote it. He wrote so that men may believe, right? Jew and Gentile. But I can't help but read John's gospel and just see warning sign after warning sign for the comfortable, complacent American church. And that really comes to a head in John chapter 11. And then the rest of the gospel of John plays out the repercussions of the selfishness of men and the love of God. And so I pray that we would heed these warnings to ourselves this morning as we see the selfish heart of these religious leaders sort of standing against uh, the loving heart of God in this plan to crucify the Christ. So if we sort of narrow down our focus a little bit here to verses 45 through 50, we see this plot of the religious leaders play out. We, we see the, the selfish nature of their plot sort of rise to the surface. Right now, remember, contextually speaking, going back to last week, the last couple of weeks actually, this is all happening in response to what event? The resurrection of Lazarus, right? This, we see the word therefore at the beginning of sort of this chain of events that plays out, and it's pointing us back to as a result of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And, and so we see a couple things happening in response to this raising of, of, Laz, of Lazarus. Excuse me. In verse 45, we see that there are some people who see this and they believe in Jesus, right? They believe on Jesus, to be more specific, literal translation there. But some of them don't believe and choose to go and inform the religious leaders of what's happened. Uh, the Pharisees, right? They, verse 46, we see them letting the religious leaders know. And so what happens is the Pharisees call on uh, the Sanhedrin, right? This is a council, if you will. It's a, it may be a helpful way for us to think about it in modern terms is it's almost like a Supreme Court, right? It's made up of Pharisees and Sadducees, but these are the religious elite. The, the, the Sanhedrin is really the highest uh, judicial body in the nation of Israel. That's the reason I say thinking about this in terms of a Supreme Court can be helpful. It's larger than our Supreme Court, but it's the highest judicial body in the nation of Israel. Now, something I think historical context here that's important for us to understand is the Sanhedrin does have political and spiritual power. They, they possess both of those things, but they, they serve under Roman authority. 
Okay, that's, that's sort of the historical, political makeup of what's happening here. The Sanhedrin has political and spiritual power, but they're serving under the authority of Rome. And so that gives us some insight into why they are responding the way that they're responding. It helps really bring to light the selfish nature of their plot to kill Jesus. And so for them, the power and popularity of Jesus is a significant problem. Because the power and popularity of Jesus threatens their position, right? It, it threatens their place in, uh, in, the, in the power, the, the superpower that is Rome. Now, I, wanted, I want you to notice something that's different in response to this miracle, to the response of the miracle that happened uh, immediately before the resurrection of Lazarus. Remember, I believe it was back in John chapter 9. What does, what does Jesus do? He heals the blind man, right? And so notice a difference in the way that the Pharisees are responding here. The Sanhedrin is responding, right? When the blind man is healed, what did they try to do? Right? They, they, they tried to dispute the fact that he was a blind man that was healed, right? They wanted to dispute the miracle. They called him into question. They called his parents into question, right? They're questioning witnesses. They're doing all of these things to try to make Jesus look like a fool. And in the end, they just look like fools, right? Because, because they couldn't debate. They couldn't debunk the fact that Jesus had performed this miracle. And so, so now notice what happens when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. There's no dispute, right? They're, they're not disputing that it happened. They're not going to call anyone else in for questioning. They're not going to bring Lazarus in and say, hey, listen, were you really dead? They're not going to bring the sisters in. You know, did he really die? Did you check his pulse? Did you stick your finger under his nose to make sure he was breathing? They're not going to do any of that. They have now accepted the power of Jesus to perform these miracles. And I think that this is significant to see the depths of their own deception even though they're, they're unwilling to try to debunk this miracle, they're willing to accept this miracle at face value, they're willing to take this, uh, this, this account that has been passed on to them, they're not going to question its authenticity, they're still going to reject this Messiah. They're going to reject this Christ that is performing these signs. And I think this is actually very important here. Notice what happens in verse 47. They say very matter-of-factly, again, no debate, this man is doing many miracles. Now I think we have to dive into a little bit of a word study here. i got good news. It's going to be up on the screen in just a second. But they're acknowledging that Jesus has supernatural power to raise the dead. There's, there's no debate here. There's no question Okay, he did it. This is not looking good for us, so what are we going to do in response? Now, unfortunately, we lose a little bit of the significance of, of, of this, this word here that's translated miracles because of the English, the English translation that is before us. But this is actually the Greek word, samian. The Greek word, samian. Guess what? This is where we get our English word, sign. If you remember last week, every time in John's Gospel, this is the word that is used when Jesus performs what we would call a miracle. Can't tell you why these English translators translated a miracle. It means sign. And this is significant because as we think about sign, if you remember from last week, a sign is something that doesn't just happen in a vacuum, right? We can, we can say a miracle and that's, that could be something that just happens in a time and a place. It's just an event, right? It's just this miraculous event. 
But Jesus isn't just performing miracles for the sake of performing miracles. No, what He's doing is He's performing signs. And, and this, this word, Samian, sign, is an event which is regarded as having some sort of special meaning, right? It's, it's something which points to a reality with an even greater significance. The most significant man about... The most significant thing, excuse me, about healing the man more, born blind wasn't that the blind man had sight. It was, this, it was the reality of spiritual blindness that was prevalent in the nation of Israel. Healing Lazarus from the dead, the most prominent thing wasn't that Lazarus physically walked out of the tomb. It was that Jesus is establishing His power over life and death. So this way there would be no question when Jesus died that his, whether or not His life was taken from Him. No, His life wasn't taken from Him. He gave it up and He will take it up again because He has all authority and all power over life and death. And so these religious leaders see all of these signs and yet they fail to consider what's being advertised. Jesus is the Messiah. And so how do we explain this? It seems so obvious, doesn't it? How do we explain their failure to see the truth? We've talked about this some, but now it's becoming incredibly obvious. The issue was not a lack of information. It's not not a lack of gaining knowledge. It's not a lack of information. Jesus actually gives the answer again, thinking back to chapter 9, when He tells them they are blinded by their own sin. They have all of the information, but they can't see how the information connects together because they have been blinded by their own sin. This should give us a deep level of concern and appreciation for the deceptiveness of the human mind. Far be it from us to think that we are not susceptible to the same sort of deception that the Pharisees fell into. They had the Word from the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, right? The Law and the Prophets and the Writings, the Wisdom Literature. They had all of that evidence that we have too. And they were actually seeing it play out with their own eyes. To some extent, you and I have to look back with faith that these things happened. But they're seeing it play out with their own eyes and they missed it. And if you don't think that you're at risk of missing it too, then you may be guilty of falling to the same deception that they were falling to. This is going to be unpacked as we consider their response a little bit more. Because it's not an issue where we have a lack of information. But it's even more shocking. I want you to think about this. It's even more shocking when we consider who these men were. Right, it's, it's really easy to like just paint the picture of these Pharisees as like the people that nobody liked. Because the more you read John's Gospel, the, the less you like them. Right? And so it's really easy to just think of them as like these bad guys that no one really cares for. And it's like, well, they've got power, so we can't do anything about it. But we've talked at length about their religious knowledge, about their stature. And so I want you to try for just a second to imagine being at this meeting. 
this, this convening of the Sanhedrin to discuss the issue of this guy named Jesus that's performing these miracles. Just imagine being there. You would have listened in awe as they opened the meeting in prayer. Impressed by their knowledge, impressed by their wisdom, impressed about the way they could talk about the things of God and the way they seemed to be talking to God. You'd been impressed by the religious robes of the Sadducees, the way that they were dressed. You would have been in awe of the phylacteries. That was those little boxes containing Scripture that the Pharisees wore across their forehead and on their hands. Right, literally wearing boxes with, with God's Word in it. All of this position, all of this knowledge, all of this power was theirs. And yet they were unable to see the glory of the Son of God. And you and I could have sat in that room and been impressed with their religion. Look at these guys responding to this problem. Here they are wearing their finest clothes. Here they are draped in the Word of God. Here they are praying these elaborate prayers. Aren't we so lucky to have them leading us? It would have been so easy to have been deceived. So again, we're reminded of this recurring theme in John's Gospel, and it's really quite simple. You can be religious and lost. You can be religious and lost. You can memorize Scripture and still be ignorant of its truth. You can say all of the right things, but you can have a heart that has never been transformed by the power of Jesus Christ. This should stir up concern in your heart. This should at the very least cause us to commit ourselves to standing firm against this type of religious deception. It should reshape the way we think about God's Word and it should reshape the way we think about our relationship with Jesus. As we continue to think about this plot of the religious leaders we see that one of the primary concerns was maintaining control. Right? That, that's one of their primary concerns. Place and power. They want to maintain control. If people continue to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, then Rome was going to end up sweeping in and taking away their authority. They would lose their position and they would lose their freedom. And so we see in them this, this striking picture of the self-centeredness of empty religion. Let me modernize what empty religion looks like. Empty religion is practiced by people who come to church, give money, say and do the right thing, and are moral people, good people but have no relationship with the living Son of God, Jesus Christ. That is what it looks like today to be guilty of the same deception that the Pharisees were guilty of. And listen, it is always, you say, well, well Brent, I mean, I, I get it. And now I'm scared. 
So how do I know? How do I know if I'm, if I'm the one who is, who is just coming to church, giving money, saying and doing the right thing, and living moral, but don't have a relationship with Jesus? I would say it's always revealed by your focus and why you do these things. Listen, if someone has been truly converted and is following Jesus, his or her focus will be first on Jesus. It will be second on other people. And then finally, it will be on him or herself. But empty religion is always focused first on me. And it's, it's difficult. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I don't, I, don't like, I don't like preaching messages like this. Like I, I don't just wake up in the morning and be like, oh, yes. I get to tell them how bad off we are today. Now, I would much rather preach something that is much less warning and much more encouraging. But I believe by the time we get to the end of this text, you will be encouraged but we must heed the warning before we can receive the encouragement so we have to consider where our focus is we have to consider what our primary concern is and I desperately want you to see this morning you can go to church you can give money you can say and do the right things you can be morally good and be doing it all for the wrong reason. You can do all of those things and still be focused on yourself. Listen, we're, we're, we're in the Bible Belt here, so I can say this and know that it is broadly true. Many of us wrestle with the idea that our relationship to Jesus is based on those very things. Attendance, giving, right? Just living morally good. And as long as I do those things, I'm going to be in God's good graces. God is going to be pleased with me, right? If I can go on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, give when the plate is passed. We don't, COVID ended that. Give when I walk by the plate. Then God will be pleased with me. Most importantly, I'll be pleased with myself. And again, I'm not saying that these things are bad. I'm saying that the focus that we have when we do these things is the issue that we're, we're focusing on ourselves. And, and so what happens here is, 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 is this empty religion begins to focus on me, right? And it's, it's just trying to do things that, that make me feel good or make me feel like God feels good about me is all of a sudden it's all based on my effort. My effort to get to church on time, to get there regularly. My, my effort in maintaining my good works so that I'll be blessed, so that I'll be safe. And you know what happens? Ultimately, I'm the one that receives the praise for it. A similar error, I believe, is apparent when we begin to evaluate the spiritual Realities by how we'll be affected. Listen, as we think about these Pharisees, their concern wasn't whether Jesus was right or good. They don't care now whether He actually raised Lazarus from the dead. They don't care what the sign means. They care how it affected them. Do you see that? 
They care how it affects their position and their power. This is their primary concern. Listen, it's a dangerous path, but it's one that we so often and so easily travel. When our decisions are not based on clear biblical standards of holiness, but how they will affect our own comfort and our own convenience. And when that happens, we're committing the error of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Notice, in response to their problem, Caiaphas, the high priest, offers a plan, verses 49 and 50. Jesus was a problem, and they needed to eliminate their problems. And so with this cunning coldness, the high priest calls for Jesus' death. And I think that his statements actually reveal another reality of religion. Religion is self-centered and fear-motivated and always leads to spiritual rationalization. That's what the Pharisees are doing. They're trying to rationalize their action in the form of their religion. Since it's not rooted in the unchanging grace of God, it will, it, it, it will waver based on circumstances, right? They're going to make a decision based on their perception and based on what benefits them, what keeps them in their mind in God's favor, and what will maintain their position. And we are at risk of doing the very same thing. Making decisions based on our perception of what benefits us, what we think keeps us in God's favor, and, and ultimately using religion to maintain our position. I'm going to go, I'm going to do, I'm going to give, because it will maintain my position. People will look at me and think I have it all together. And if people think I have it all together, surely to goodness I've convinced God that I've got it all together. And so when it's time for me to repent of my selfishness, when it's time for me to repent of my sin, I'm definitely not going to do that. Right? I'm certainly not going to do it in public because here I have this perception to uphold. If people see me repenting, they're going to know I don't have it all together. God help us, if God sees me repenting, He's going to know I don't have it all together. Can I just say to you, God knows that you are way worse than you ever thought you could possibly be. You will not shock Him with your sinfulness. And I take great hope in that. That God is not surprised by the dark areas in my life. In fact, He knows them better than I do. And in His grace, He sent a resolution to the darkness in my life. And it wasn't in the form of religion. It's not in the form of, of, of religious practice. It's in the form of a person. It's in the form of His Son, Jesus Christ. And so I don't have to rationalize the dark areas of my life. I don't have to rationalize my sinful behavior in the form of religion. I surrendered at the foot of the cross. But listen, this is why we are tempted. This is why we are tempted to neglect our responsibility as Christians. I think what I'm talking about this morning hits at the very root of why we turned evangelism and disciple-making into something that only a select few people who have a special call of God on their life do. Please hear this this morning. When we think the thing that pleases God most is coming and doing what you're doing right now, which is very important, sitting on a pew, listening to God's Word preached, 
coming back again on Sunday night or on Wednesday night or whenever the next opportunity to come back is. When we think that's what makes our relationship with Jesus healthy, what it allows us to do is excuse ourselves from the responsibility that He actually gave us to go to all the nations and to make disciples. And we can say, I've got my place, I've got my position, I've got my comfort, I'm not going to allow it to be disturbed because I don't like certain things, I don't like being relational, I don't like... To Listen, confession time, I probably like people less than any preacher has ever liked people. Like, I'm just not good with people. I'm just not good with them. I love you, but I, I ask all of them. I'm just really bad with people. I'm not great with emotions, which is probably why I'm not good with people. Right, now that that's out there, y'all can, can pray for me. But we base everything off of our perception. Our perception of what pleases God. You can spend your whole life sitting in the church pew, but when you get to heaven and there are no disciples who are behind you, who are a result of what you did with what you got while you were in the pew, Jesus isn't going to pat you on the back and say, buddy, I'm sure glad you didn't miss. He's going to be way less concerned with the church services you missed and way more concerned with the opportunities to share His gospel that you missed. These are the things that please God. But you see, we rationalize our inaction through our religion. It's okay that I don't do those things. It's okay that I don't talk about my faith because look at what else I do. Look at how faithful I am to give. Look at how faithful I am to attend. God wants you to attend and God wants you to give. He wants you to go, and He wants you to do, and He wants you to be a good steward of what He has given you. And we think about stewardship in terms of money. Do you realize that right now, God is giving you truth from His Word, and He expects you to steward it when you leave here? Not to hold on to it and bring it back with you next week. Right? You don't, you don't put it in a box and wear it on your forehead and protect it so that no one will see it. Right? We think about how this was playing out for the, for the Pharisees and for the Sadducees. Jesus walks into the temple court and what does He do into the courtyard? He overturns the money changing table. Do you realize where those money changing tables were set up? They were set up in the place of the temple where the nations could come to the temple in order to pray. This was the place of evangelism for the nation of Israel. And they had turned it in to a money changing, uh, to, to a money making, excuse me, to a money making operation. And Jesus is angry because they have taken the mission, they have rationalized it with their religion, and they have shored up their position. And so we have taken what God intended to be a hub for missions. A place for us to get what we need here so we can go out there and do what we have called, been called to do and we have turned it in to a holy huddle, a fort where we're protected against the rest of the world and the rest of the world is protected from us. But as long as we keep coming to the fort, surely God will be pleased. All we're doing is playing this game. We look at an action that is wrong 
but we begin to justify why it's not really that bad, why it's really okay. And what we're doing is just coming up with a defense for our actions. You realize the theological thing that's happening here. We're trying to justify ourselves by what we do. But that's the opposite of the gospel. It's the opposite of what the gospel teach, teaches. Your justification and my justification, our justification doesn't rest on us. It can't. Our justification comes through Jesus and through Him alone. We are justified by Christ, not justified by what we do. What Caiaphas is doing here is self-justification. The religious leaders wanted to kill an innocent man because it benefited them. It was politically expedient. But they had to come up with some type of justification. If they could justify it, their thinking goes, then God would not hold it against them. On the scales of good and bad, their, their good motive would outweigh the evil of the actual deed. That's what they're trying to do, convince themselves and God and everyone else that their motive is good enough to outweigh the evil nature of the action. Obviously, Caiaphas' speech must have been convincing because they make plans in verse 53 to kill Jesus. And so now it's gone beyond these impulsive attempts to stone Jesus and now it's become premeditated murder. Verse 54, we see that Jesus avoids them until the appropriate time. Again, a reminder that He's not going to die at the whims or the wishes of man, but He is going to die in His time. He will be the one that gives up His life. It won't be a religious elite. It won't be the powers of Rome that take it from Him. He will give it up and He will be the one to take it up again. As I close, I want to focus now on the purpose of God. There's this warning that should be heeded, this concern that should be heeded from the religious leader's selfishness, but now I want you to see the purpose of God and salvation. Because Caiaphas' words actually reveal a second perspective on Jesus' death. You see, God planned Caiaphas' words to serve His own purpose. They held, these words held greater meaning than Caiaphas could have ever imagined or planned. His intention was evil, but God had ordained the death of Jesus. Peter makes this point clearly during his sermon at the day of Pentecost, Acts 2.23. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. God decided for Jesus to die. His death was not an accidental tragedy. In fact, it fulfilled God's eternal plan. But listen, it doesn't get Caiaphas off the hook. Understand something. He's not... Caiaphas isn't just like this unaware, unwilling puppet. It's not like God has run His hand up Caiaphas' back and He's forcing Caiaphas to say and to think these things. He's not moving Caiaphas' mouth for Him. And so once again, we see the interplay between God's divine sovereignty and human responsibility. We've seen this tension time and time again in the Gospel of John. And hopefully, if anything, you've learned that it's okay to live with this tension. The reason so many people argue over God's sovereignty and man's free will is because we're not willing to live with the tension that God's Word clearly presents. And, and yet we have it here again. I love what John MacArthur wrote. He said, God sovereignly turned His wicked, that's Caiaphas's wicked, blasphemous words into truth. 
the death of Jesus Christ may have been politically expedient for the leadership of Israel, but it accomplished a more important purpose. There's a key word here that I want us to see. It's actually really easy to overlook. It happens both in Caiaphas' prophecy in verse 50 and then again in John's interpretation of it in verses 51 and 52. And it's that little word, for. F-O-R. Maybe if we define that word another way, it would help us understand the significance a little more if you substitute the words in place of or on behalf of. You see, Jesus was dying in place of someone else. This is actually the exact same language that's used of the temple sacrifice. The Gospel of John has constantly and will constantly point us back to this Passover festival, right? As a matter of fact, we're entering into the Passover phase of the Gospel of John. And so the Passover festival as a celebration when, uh, when lambs would be brought into Jerusalem and sacrificed in the temple. In chapter 1, John the Baptist twice introduced Jesus by saying, Here is the Lamb of God. Right, So Jesus has already been introduced as this Lamb, forcing us back to the Passover. Beginning in chapter 12, as I've mentioned, the rest of this gospel takes place during the Passover. And so to understand this prophecy, I think that we need to understand what took place at Passover. The first Passover is recorded excuse me, in Exodus chapter 12. God had, had brought nine plagues on the Egyptians. And what He's doing is He's warning Pharaoh to let His people go. Pharaoh wouldn't do it. So there's this one final plague coming, and it's the killing of the firstborn. However, God makes this provision so that His people, so that the nation of Israel would not have to suffer the death of their firstborn. They had to take this unblemished lamb, they had to sacrifice it, right, kill it, and then put some of its blood on their doorpost, on the doorpost of their house, so that when God saw the blood, He would pass over them and their sons would be safe. And so to save the life of their sons, each family had to take the life of a lamb. But then there's another significant time on the Jewish calendar that's focused on sacrifice. It's called the Day of Atonement. Right on that day, two goats would be brought to the priest... One of them was sacrificed to the Lord and the other was released into the wilderness as a scapegoat. Right? That's where we get this idea of scapegoat. Two goats are brought in. One is, is sacrificed. The other one serves as a scapegoat. And so it's a beautiful picture of what is necessary to atone for the sins of man. There's two very important theological terms. Again, they're going to be on the screen, so isn't God good? That are displayed in this Day of Atonement. There is expiation, which is the removing or covering of sin. That's what the scapegoat represents. It's the removal of sin. But then the goat that was slaughtered pictures propitiation. And that is, in the Old Testament, the pacifying. It's pacifying the just wrath of God. One goat was not enough. One had to be a scapegoat. For expiation, one had to be a sacrifice goat for propitiation. This is why we understand Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of everything that was promised. This is why we understand Him as the promised Messiah. Because He is both the expiation and the propitiation of our sins. He is the one who has removed our sins and He is the one whose blood has been shed for our sins. And so now, if you are in Christ, the wrath of God has not been just pacified. The wrath of God has been satisfied. 
Because Jesus Christ is the only satisfactory atonement for our sins. God could not just place the sin on the people on the back of a scapegoat and send it away. Do you understand His holiness and His justice demands blood be shed for the forgiveness of sin? And so whenever sin is forgiven, someone has to pay. Right? We sometimes view God's forgiveness as Him sending our sin away into oblivion, but the reality is that our sin is still counted. It's just not counted against us. Sacrifice is necessary because of our guilt. The prophet, the prophet Isaiah spoke of that in chapter 53, verse 6. And so when Caiaphas prophesied that Jesus would die for or on our behalf, on behalf of the children of God, he reminds us that someone must satisfy the debt of sin. And there's only a perfect lamb that could do that. And only by the shedding of his blood. Someone has to pay for sin. If you were angry with me this morning and you stroll over to the parsonage and you cut my tires, somebody has to pay for that. Right? When we rebel against a holy and a blameless God, somebody has to pay for that. And that person was Jesus Christ. Through the perfect sacrifice of Jesus, the just wrath of God has been removed and forgiveness can be offered and fellowship restored between creator and creature. John Piper says this, There was only one hope for me, that the infinite wisdom of God might make a way for the love of God to satisfy the wrath of God so that I might become the Son of God. Let me read that again. There was only one hope for me. You can put your name there. There was only one hope for Brent, that the infinite wisdom of God might make a way for the love of God to satisfy the wrath of God so that I might become a son of God. The death of Christ would gather all of His sheep into the fold with one shepherd. None would be lost. None would be forgotten. All would, by the power of the shepherd and through the offering of his life, be brought safely into the flock of God. And so we, we sing and we preach and we meditate on the death of Jesus, not to bask in the glory details, but to celebrate the glorious victory that we have in Christ. It is our victory in Christ that will save us from our sin, not our victory in religious rationalization. Thank you for listening to the Locust Grove podcast. We want to remind you to like and subscribe to the podcast so that you will be notified anytime we post a new episode. We pray that you have been encouraged and challenged by what you have heard in today's episode, and we look forward to joining with you again next week.